Hello and welcome to the December edition of Talk Evidence, your monthly look at some of the evidence shaping our lives and practice. I'm Helen MacDonald, Content Integrity Editor for BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Juan Franco. Hi, Juan. Hi, Helen. In this episode, we have three guests who are going to talk about the challenge of seeking consent from participants, patients and the public in big data sets. Then we're going to look at how long insulin can live out of the fridge. New research, which might contain useful information for people who are living with diabetes in disaster zones. First, let's look at patient consent, large data sets and its use in research over time. In the news recently in the UK are two stories that have made the public worry about use of their health data. Firstly, the news that UK Biobank, who hold a lot of genomic health data, allowed research by an insurance company. Secondly, the NHS has entered a contract with Palantir to do analysis on NHS data. Here at Talk Evidence, we wanted to understand more about seeking consent for these large data sets. Some are cohort studies like UK Biobank, which were formed with the purpose of undertaking research. Other data sets are formed from routinely collected health data, like that collected in the NHS, which have the potential to include whole populations. To help us untangle the consent issues, earlier this month, Duncan Jarvis, our multimedia editor, talked to Natalie Banner, Director of Ethics at Genomics England, who's been researching and thinking about these issues for some time. At Genomics England, we have the advantage of um, having a participant panel, and this is a group of people whose data we hold. They are all participants in our National Genomic Research Library, and we really try to hold ourselves accountable to them. So they are entitled to ask lots of questions to ask about uh, what's happening with the data in the library. Uh, we often go to them for advice uh, where we're not sure if a potential new use of data might be in line with their expectations. It's really tricky because the technology, as I say, is, is evolving quickly. The scale and the pace of innovation is quite huge when it comes to data-driven technologies. Um, so it's not easy to try and have these conversations and make sure that we are um, getting that input. But that panel is brilliant for holding us to account. And we really try to make sure that we are um, working with them to understand what their expectations are. If they have particular concerns, how can we address them? There's also a lot of public attitudes research that exists uh, that sort of gives the broad scope of how members of the public generally feel about the uses of data. And that can be very helpful for sort of deciding uh, whether you think something may be in line or completely you know, unexpected. Um, uh, but, you know, as I say, with the technology evolving quite quickly, it can be hard to keep up. And so it's, it's a kind of constant dialogue almost mm -hmm. with the, the public around it. I think that makes then the not consented data, the routinely collected data, like the NHS England um, stuff, that's done in a very different model. And it doesn't seem to be that conversation going on with the public in the same way. It's, I mean, it's very hard to do at a population scale, right? So, you know, you, you can ask, you know, what do the public think about this or about that or what are their concerns? And, you know, to be honest, there's, there is, um, uh, it, it's fair to say the public is not a homogenous group. People will have very, very different responses to questions depending on their own values, their own experiences of care, um, lots of different perspectives there. And of course, it very much depends on the methodology you're using to ask the question. Um, it's very, very different 
different doing a citizen's jury with a small group of people where you take several days to really dive deep into details of the health and data ecosystem, explore questions. Those participants can ask questions. They can get answers from experts. They can really sort of interrogate and understand the questions. And then you ask them how they feel about a particular use of data. You're going to get a very different answer there um, from, for example, a survey online asking at quite a surface level, you know, how do you feel about companies accessing your health data without there being any context about uh, purpose or potential benefits or indeed potential risks. So there is a lot of attitudes um, and engagement research out there. And I don't think it's possible to say, you know, the public think this. Mm. Um, But it is fair to say that data use is becoming kind of more entwined in our lives in in many areas, not just in health. Um, And to my mind, it's really important that we don't treat this just as a question of education. The belief that if people just understood how health data was used, they'd support it. I think that's the wrong approach. I think we really do need to be much more proactive about engagement and actually asking questions, hearing those answers and being responsive to them. You cannot expect people to trust what you're doing uh, unless you are open about both the potential benefits you're driving for, um, how you're going to evaluate those, what the risks might be. um, And you have to have that openness uh, to be able to respond and adapt if people say, we're not happy about that. Um, and, And actually the systems have to be responsive. Otherwise, you're not going to get that trust and confidence from the public or indeed, in the case of health data, from health professionals. And if you don't have them on board, then you, you really do have a challenge. I mean, it's, it's interesting there that how much things outside of the health sphere might change people's perception mm-hmm. of the risks of, of sharing data. So I'm just thinking at the moment, there are, Facebook is in court at the moment about you know the use of their data do you worry about those kind of external factors and what that will do to your cohort's understanding and, and worries around their data? Absolutely. And, and this is one of the problems of trying to talk about questions of public trust, because the fact is people's views, their trust, their confidence are going to be so heavily affected by things that are entirely outside of your control as, as a health ecosystem or as a data ecosystem. Um, you, you know, you mentioned Facebook. There, there's lots of examples of um, particularly technology companies using data in ways that people may find objectionable. Um, they're not very transparent necessarily. And so there is this general anxiety about what's happening to data, who's using it, how's it being used, is it helping people, is it harming them, are those things visible? So we're operating in a world in which all of those anxieties and fears are there. And sometimes it can be hard to cut through that to say, but actually, if we do this well, and I don't underestimate how hard it is to do it well, but if we do this well, there are some fantastic benefits. So we can sometimes lose sight of these astonishing advances that come with the benefit, come with the ability to use, link up, connect data, rich and granular data in novel ways and, and, and actually take the benefits of technologies such as machine learning um, to drive those because there's this sort of broader anxiety and fear. In that sort of, I don't know, slightly utilitarian mindset, is there ever a, a time that you think um, actually the benefit could outweigh uh, a, a lack of consent for the for the use of, of data? 
I, I think that's it's tricky to answer that because I think it's so context dependent. Mm. Um, and and if you think about consent, consent is a very the way we treat consent is a very individual thing. I consent to this thing happening. And the difficulty when we're talking about really wide scale uses of data is that actually the potential benefits or indeed the harms or the risks may not be felt at that individual level. So. Um, in the past few years, I think there's been an interesting development in the ethical discussion about uses of data beyond just thinking about privacy or respect for autonomy. You know, that very individual approach to how do I feel about my data being used in this way or that way? And we've started to think much more or appreciate more. There are ethical issues beyond the individual group risks or harms, the idea of being marginalised or, on the other hand, over-surveyed. It's not just about those individual rights, but more sort of community, group, population, risks, benefits, harms. There's much more of a societal focus. And the challenge with the idea of consent is it does have that very specific individual focus. So I do think it very much depends on the on the case. And I do think consent is a really important ethical safeguard for particularly for areas like genomics, which are complex. We have such rich, um, incredibly detailed data on people if we hold their whole genomes. We have to treat that very carefully. Uh, we don't understand what a lot of the genome does. You know, we don't quite appreciate the power of it yet. So I do think consent is a very valuable um, part of the ethical discussion, but I don't think it covers everything. I think we need to have more conversation about uh, group benefits, risks, harms, um, who's bearing the brunt of risk if we're using data at scale. Uh, might we inadvertently exacerbate health inequalities uh, through the use of health data rather than addressing them? Those things absolutely need to be part of the ethical discourse. Um, going beyond this sort of very narrow focus on individual rights. Just in the world, there seems to be this sort of acknowledgement that individualism is perhaps run as far as it can go. It, it, it's, it's part of the reason I'm, I'm slightly wary of um, things like dynamic consent models, which is if you're interested in, in, the, in the sort of the limits of consent, um, I'd really recommend you re, uh, listen to Honora O'Neill's TED talk. Um, she, she, it's uh, all about trust. And she articulates quite clearly that we put so much weight on consent to carry this ethical burden. It's all your responsibility to decide to know what risk you're taking on. And essentially, you end up with a terms and conditions type approach to consent where you're signing on, you're basically signing these conditions. You've no idea what they mean. You probably haven't read them, uh, but you've taken on that responsibility by ticking a box. That to me is not ethical um, and it's not very meaningful. Instead, you, you need that sort of balance of, yes, there's a degree of individual choice, whether you say that as a consent or an opt-out is up for debate. But what you need is the governance. You need a really robust system of governance around decision-making that's transparent, that's accountable, that does meaningful communication. And then you've got some of that ethical burden of doing the right thing taken by a system that has experts, it has accountable people, and they take on some of that responsibility rather than it all being on you as an individual. The advantage of that not only is taking some of the weight off the individual, but it also means you can take account of those questions around group risks and harms. You can think about questions of diversity, equity of access to benefits, which you don't get when you have that very individual level focus. Um, you can think across a system. If we if we pursue this use of data in this area, um, 
all this innovation with this well-funded hospital in Oxford, what does that mean for people in Bradford um, who aren't necessarily going to get the benefits of that? You know, you can think a lot more at the system level if you've got that focus on governance. So that's part of my thinking about why um, there's a limit to what consent can do in terms of solving the ethical challenges of using health data. And trust me, I could talk about this all day. <laughs> that was really interesting from Natalie. Um, Juan, what did you think of what she said? Well, there were many things that I had no idea about. So I, I think it was very informative. The new ways in which new uses of data poses greater challenges for patient consent um, is an evergreen topic and is probably going to be more so in the coming years. And uh, when she mentioned about the, the patient being engaged in the co- consent at uh, different levels, not only about how the personal data is used, but to which purpose, I was just thinking the importance of patient and public involvement mm. in research in the sense that um, when you have good uh, co-production and patient involvement in the study design, a lot of these considerations that are patient-centered could be planned in advance and having patient advocates could have a good insight as to what type of uh, challenges you might find a consent. So I, th- I found that, um, that link to be very important. As she was saying, it's very difficult to provide consent for so many circumstances, unknown and in the future, and balancing that individual level consent, which may be practically very hard to do with more, as you're saying, ensuring that there is very good patient and public oversight and ethical input into the project in general, um, may may be the way forward i don't know yeah and not only that the one of the things that i found very difficult to think is how do you think about how that data could be used in the future so the purpose part Mm. and um and it is already difficult for researchers to build data sets and to think the review question as it is and to think that in the future, the data would be used for different purposes. And some of these purposes may need further ethical review. Um, it is very difficult for a patient to consent to that and anticipate all possible scenarios. So um, I, I thought that that part about the purpose and long-term use to be quite challenging That's not the first time we've talked to Natalie on Talk Evidence um, and we'll put a link to the previous episode where we talked to her about some issues similar to this and I'm sure she is someone that we're going to hear again from in the future. The research relevant to disaster zones or people living under difficult conditions. Managing chronic conditions is challenging and we often have limited evidence to answer some of the very practical questions which patients or the public might have. And this is more so when people are living under difficult conditions, sometimes in a disaster or conflict zone. And Juan, you spotted this paper on temperature and storage conditions for human insulin. So at the moment, recommendations for storage of insulin do vary a bit by manufacturer and product. But in general, the advice is to put unopened 
vials of insulin or flasks or cartridges for insulin pens in a fridge. So they're kept between two and eight degrees Celsius. And then once they're opened, they can be stored at room temperature and used over the next four to six weeks. But what if you can't do this first bit because you don't have access to a fridge? Juan, can you tell us a bit about the research paper that triggered uh, this item? Um, so, yes, I found this uh, new Cochrane review quite interesting. It's a quite at a atypical Cochrane review as they included um, both clinical studies and um, lab studies and data from the pharmaceutical companies on, on the potency of insulin at different temperatures and, and how that potency changes in time. So the review is called thermal stability uh, of insulin for insulin storage, and um, and and the the main findings, if I have to summarize them, is that um, it is it's possible to store up to twenty five degrees for six months and up to thirty seven degrees for two months um, insulin without a clinically relevant loss of potency, which is um, ch challenges the current instructions on how to store insulin that it must be refrigerated. Absolutely. It's, it's been a really interesting one to learn more about. And you haven't just told us about the paper. You've also done some interviews. Tell us a bit about who you spoke to. So I spoke to two people. Um, one is Philippa Bouya from uh, Medicine Saint Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders. Um, and she works in non-communicable diseases uh, as, a, as a leader of the working group. Let's hear from her. We're extremely happy to see this review out. Um, we've known it was in process and we're sort of really waiting for these results because this issue of storage of insulin is obviously a huge one in our settings. We actually started to look at this a number of years ago um, based on questions from the field. So we had a we have a project in Dadaab refugee camp in, in Kenya um, where we were storing the insulin at the time in, in our health facility because the temperatures are very hot and patients were needing to come twice a day, which is also suboptimal for type 1 diabetes, but twice a day for their insulin injections. Um, and although it's in a kind of contained camp, there were a lot of um, security issues. And so patients were not always able to come twice a day. Um, and they were therefore sometimes only getting their insulin injection once a day. And the team was starting to see more and more admissions to hospital with acute complications because of untreated. And so there we, we kind of had a look to see what evidence was around um, about storing. You know, the team was saying we really need to give patients the insulin to take home, to store in their huts. Um, I mean, this is not feasible to continue. But when we had a look at the evidence, you know, weren't really convinced that there was enough evidence to, to do this in a safe way. And so we um, teamed up with the University of Geneva in Switzerland to do a study, one, one of the studies, the Kaufman study that's mentioned in the Cochrane Review, to look at um, storage of the insulin during the time of use by patients kept in the, in the same conditions, the temperature conditions that we found in Dadaab. So that was fluctuating between 25 and 37 degrees. And the study, in short, found that it was, you know, safe um, at these temperatures, didn't deteriorate. Um, and so based on that, we have, you know, again, 
fairly pragmatically started to um, give patients insulin to take home, even where the temperatures are hot. And we we give them or facilitate them using you know locally made storage stool, uh, cooling containers, storage containers such as the clay pots. Um, and and so we've been doing this. Um, but but I think you know we've been doing this based on one study and based on being pragmatic that you know sometimes it's a case a choice between no insulin or insulin stored in suboptimal temperatures so trying to feel comfortable you know seeing that we have enough evidence that at least this is safe for patients and putting a number of safety measures around that and how we educate the patients um, but really you know there's there's been a need for a lot more evidence so life for a child did a similar study looking at temperatures in in um, india last year um, and then this Cochrane review has come out. And so that's been really fantastic. Um, and we are now looking at doing an information sheet, trying to sort of gather the different ev- evidence together to see how we can more widely advise our teams um, on use of insulin where it's not possible to, to store it according to product information. We've seen a couple of instances you know, really currently at the moment where this issue of storage of insulin has been a challenge and lack of kind of knowledge that it's actually more stable than we think. So one example, of course, has been the conflict in Gaza, where obviously the cold chain has been a big challenge. Um, and before and, and even the sort of cold chain on the transport on the way to Gaza, um, you know, sort of through the transport chain through through Egypt and so on, um, you know, setting that up has been a barrier to, you know, has delayed getting insulin there. Um, and, and similarly, we're working in, in Khartoum in Sudan, um, and there's been challenges having cold chain in the hospitals there for various reasons, um, and children coming in in diabetic ketoacidosis with no insulin available because of the lack of cold chain. So we're seeing that this is really a a current pertinent issue and something for which there is a strong need to to get out um, the evidence and information to teams um, about what flexibility there can be in storing insulin out of culture. You mentioned something um, quite interesting about the, the, the safety, and I guess that the, the stakes are, might be a little bit different for type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, right? Do you think that, that, that uh, these pragmatic decisions that you made were different for this different types of diabetes or what wh- what was your thought around this yeah i think that's a really um important question i think that in um you know i i one statement i i i heard once that's always resonated with me has been you know living with type 1 diabetes in a crisis it's worse to be without insulin than it is to be without water so these are obviously the the first priority and this is the really where we we say i mean being without insulin versus being with, you know, insulin that's been exposed to higher temperatures, you know, it's it's much more straightforward um, sort of the answer on how to respond. Um, and perhaps less so for type 2. And, and certainly, you know, it's the, the stakes are different for type 2 in terms of it's not immediately life-threatening. <clears throat> um, so uh, the, I guess the always the challenge in some of these settings is, is how you make the guidance simple for for teams, I mean, clear um, and simple, um, but obviously our priority would always be for type one um, in terms of getting the insulin to them. 
the reality in some of our settings as well is that it's not always easy, this distinction between the types of diabetes in terms of the presentations, the history around the presentation and so on. Um, so I, in reality, it's looking at, you know, um, whether people are only treated with insulin or, or whether they're also on other medications and, and it would be obviously a little bit safer for them to be without insulin for a while. What are the gaps do you think that uh, that are more urgent in your field of work? Regarding diabetes in humanitarian settings, there's there's a huge amount of scope um, for evidence. I think earlier on I was mentioning the the kind of you know the way diabetes is managed in low resource settings versus high resource settings, and the problem that much of the evidence for the kind of newer medications and tools has been generated in high resource settings. So. Again, you know, looking at those newer insulins, injecting devices and other tools um, in low resource settings is always, you know, going to be very useful. And sort of so this study looking at the analog, the long acting analogs, you know, what is their role in humanitarian settings? Is there a role in settings of food insecurity is something that I think has has great potential because I think a lot of us have questions around, of course, we think. We know, you know, the prices for analog should come down, but there's still going to be some discrepancy in the pricing. You know, where where should we best use the resources of analog insulins in humanitarian settings? Where are they of best added value? Um, then, I mean, there's also, and sorry, then the other point around the newer tools um, and including the analogs is the issue of the qualitative um, evidence and the issue of, what impact this has on quali quality of life. Because a lot of the evidence is looking at hard outcomes, HbA1c's, hypoglycemia. Um, and, you know, when you actually talk to patients, to clinicians, you know, they really say that these things can make a difference to their lives. And this is evidence that I think is extremely important and that we really should be, you know, taking into account when looking at what we should be, you know, what tools and, and medications we should be um, having for people with diabetes in these settings. Um, the, the, in terms of the, the other aspect of care, the issue of glucose monitoring is extremely important and unfortunately really underused in humanitarian settings. Um, that, you know, people think, might think of insulin if we're lucky, but then, of course, um, the glucose monitoring sort of unfortunately comes second to that, but of course is imperative for people, um, you know, living with type 1 diabetes and on insulin. Um, and we have a lot of challenges around that in our settings. So, you know, people who are innumerate, illiterate, um, you know, so there's questions around how can we best use glucose monitoring in these settings. Unfortunately, the reality is also that Glucose strips are very expensive. Um, the strips for the glucose monitoring are expensive and often clinicians and, and people living with diabetes are having to make choices around how to use best use those strips. So again, if I mean, I, I don't want there to be evidence on this because I want there to be strips widely available, unfortunately, <laughs> but the reality these days is, you know, understanding the best way to use it. But again, going past that, I mean, glucose, glucose monitoring through finger stick monitoring is is the old way of doing it it's challenging it's not inexpensive um but um you know in high resource settings continuous glucose monitoring is more commonly used um and again there's a lack of 
evidence and kind of understanding of their potential added value in our setting. So we are doing a pilot implementation in Le with children in Lebanon um, at the moment. And the organization FIND is doing is also um, piloting use of CGMs in Kenya and South Africa this year. So I think this is fantastic, but I think there's more work that needs to be done on that. Again, they're extremely expensive. Again, not necessarily adapted to sort of the heat and climatic conditions of low resource settings, heat and dust and so on. Um, so, you know, FIND has also done a target product profile looking at what the ideal profile would be. Um, but again, seeing, you know, what are the best kind of tools um, that really just bring much more information for management of diabetes and that are easier for, for people living with diabetes to use. Um, and then I guess, you know, there, there can be other questions more around how you organise the care and how you provide the care, particularly where you don't have very highly trained health professionals. So this is things around, you know, who can, who can be doing insulin mm. adjustment, how do you train them on that, you know, of course, lower trained healthcare workers or people living with diabetes themselves. Um, yeah, so yeah, a number of questions around around that. Juan, you're being super diligent this month because you actually interviewed two people on this topic. So tell us about the second person you spoke with. So yes, uh, so we immediately when when we talked to uh, Hepa, it was clear that. Perhaps we needed a, a complementary perspective on how it's like to to live with diabetes in places where there are challenges in the in the in the management. So we spoke to a patient. It's called Sirin Farhat, and she's from Lebanon. And she provided very very good insights about not only about the insulin um, issue, but overall what are the main challenges of people with diabetes um, living in uh, this region. Let's hear from her now. Hi, my name is Selim Farhat. Um, I'm a person living with diabetes for more than 16 years now. Um, I'm from Lebanon um, and I was diagnosed in 2007 after um, a war that was uh, done on Lebanon. Um, so my relationship to diabetes is basically having lived with it and supporting my dad, who also have, has type 2. And um, the more I grew into my life with this condition, it felt challenging because, like, as a woman in the region, you get a lot of uh, social stigma because you live with diabetes. Uh, so when I finally kind of um, took the, the, found a partner and, like, we took the decision to get married, I had to really explain extensively about diabetes to his parents because like the first question I remember they asked me was, oh, is it contagious? And I had to tell them, no, it's not. Like I can't give diabetes to your son, so don't worry about that. Um, it took a lot of education for the people around me to understand what it means or what it feels like to live with it. I still felt very isolated. I didn't know any other women who had, who had it, like myself, or any other people who had it who didn't really interact. I didn't get to talk diabetes language with other people, and it felt alone. So that's how Fosamon Luko started. It was an Instagram page. Uh, in the beginning and uh, I used it to connect with people with diabetes in Lebanon and around the world. From that I moved into um, learning about an international movement called 2-1 International which uh, advocates for the right of access to insulin and I, I created the Lebanon chapter 41 International. Could you tell us a little bit more about how is the management of diabetes in, in your region? Um, so it really varies depending on where you come from in the region. 
some countries are very advanced. Um, they support, like the, the government supports um, um, conditions like diabetes. Um, but in Lebanon, it's paid out of pocket and it used to be reimbursed with the crisis and the inflation, the hyperinflation, where the currency devaluated more than, I don't know, 85 or 90 percent. There's no more reimbursement. So basically, people just have to pay out of pocket. And at the same time, salaries have decreased exponentially. Uh, for example, if someone used to get a thousand dollars salary, let's say per month, now they get paid like one seventy dollars per month. So you can imagine how hard it is to, about to, to be able to afford insulin. And like now, we see a lot of people. Like a lot of people get referred to me um, with amputations, doing um, bad mentally, you know, because like they don't test, they don't buy enough insulin they take a day yes they know they ration their insulin um so it's really we are in a crisis in a sense we still are in a crisis also we have like an electricity problem um there's a lot of mm -hmm. uh, shortage like electricity shortage and sometimes you only get like in my neighborhood we only get electricity one hour every 24 hours so like i happen to be able to afford solar power and generator power which i pay a lot of money for um some people don't they don't have electricity so like how would you store insulin mm. yeah because one of the things that we're talking with Philippa is um the uh, the work and because all all of these conversations triggered because we we started reading some evidence about uh storing in, uh, that insulin could be stored for many many days at least a month or a couple or, or more and and maintain um, potency uh, activity uh, even even if not uh, refrigerated. So um, reassuring or or what what are your thoughts about this type of um, studies that support the longer use of insulin um, uh, without refrigeration? true and I think this is scientifically proven we need to spread education about it because there's still so much misconception on this so people need to know pharmacists need to tell people like now if I buy insulin in the pharmacy the first thing he tells me go straight to the fridge put your insulin there so it creates this kind of um, fear of insulin going um, bad so but at the same time when we educate on that we need to make sure people aren't putting um, their insulin in, in very high heat because, for example, MSF uh, in the Bika works in a, in a region that is very hot in the summer. Temperatures can go up to 40 degrees Celsius. So, like, we also have to give people tips on how to properly store insulin. Just because it can be out of the fridge doesn't mean I can leave my insulin pen in a car for one hour in the sun. So, there has to be, like, a lot of um, information on this and education for the patients so they can trust the process. So what do you think are the top priorities to improve um, how people with diabetes um, live in, 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 your, in your region? Um, I'm going to speak for Lebanon because that's the most... I, I actually can speak for Lebanon and Palestine because I have the most information on these two countries at the moment. Um, the first need, thing we need to do is we have to make sure that people living with chronic conditions like diabetes that depend on insulin, people depend on insulin to live, it's life support, have access to insulin. And they should be on the essential medications list in Lebanon because in Lebanon, um, insulin is not on the medications uh, sponsored by the Ministry of Health, like uh, medication for cancer, for example, some medication for cancer. That's one. Two, 
um, there should be some sort of subsidy or like a public policy, I think, that protects people living with um, chronic conditions like diabetes, like type 1 diabetes, because these people need access to test strips. Kids with type 1 need access to sensors. They need access to this technology because it makes it easier to monitor and make sure they don't have any kind of um, a medical emergency at schools. That's two. Three, we need to include the mental health aspect and the way we look at people with diabetes. We shouldn't just look at them as patients. They are people with lives um, and experience and they know how to manage their condition. We have to look at them as people who have to humanize the experience and the interaction and the way we talk to them, the diabetes language. This is a later stage. We have more important things to deal with now at the moment. But this is something very important because based on my experience and the conversations I had over the past four years, um, a lot of mismanagement of diabetes isn't because people don't have the tools. They have the tools. They just have underlying mental health conditions like health anxiety, like hypo-anxiety, like depression, and they lead them to mismanage their condition. So we need to work on people's relationships to themselves and to diabetes and how to manage. This is very important and this will reduce um, the very high price governments pay for complications in the long run. So Juan, what are your thoughts having read the paper and heard from our guests? Um, well, first of all, uh, the, um, when Philippa mentioned that insulin as, the, as water, um, I thought that that was um, quite powerful and um, and it left me thinking about how we think about the needs of, of people. And the second thing that Philippa, uh, I mean, or everything that she said was incredibly interesting, but um, it was interesting how she expanded the problem, not only to storage, uh, but also of how to transfer technology um, that are widely used, uh, especially newer types of insulins, newer cartridges and pens, to to lower resource set settings and all the challenges that that brings. Um, so those two things really caught my attention. And complementary to that, when Sirene also spoke about what it's been like living with diabetes, I thought that it was um, it was fascinating to hear, or sad, I would say, it was to hear about all the difficulties related to stigma. Of, of having diabetes, which is something that perhaps we, we I had not, not had in my mind before um, running into this interview. And also about the, what are we asking for research, right? Because we might say, okay, we need more studies on how much we can store insulin, but uh, people need electricity for other things in their lives. So they need electricity to... Uh, for to for their food and um, well and and for everything else I I mean electricity is quite a ba basic service so I'm not sure if the the fairest thing to say is how whether we should do more research into how insulin can be stored for much longer time but perhaps trying to figure out how to get electricity to those people so they can live um, better lives in general so it's more of a social the social determinants of health right in general. Uh, and 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 I think that, that she made it quite clear that the problem was not only the heat, but also the fake insulin, the paid out of pocket. Well, a, a, a lot of structural problems that would not be easily fixed only by s storing insulin for a longer period outside the fridge. Yeah, 
Absolutely. We were researching this item. We came across um, for those instances where for humanitarian reasons or practical reasons, you can't have those basic things go in or there are challenges um, for a period of time. There are people working really hard on trying to build evidence for disaster zones. I mean, often we overlook practical challenges um, in evidence and sometimes the questions that are most important to patients, I guess, in normal times when you're used to having electricity, you don't think that this is a question that you need the answer to, but it's really reassuring to know that there are groups out there who are thinking about what happens in the worst case scenario and trying to think through what questions do patients and the public most need the answer to and how can we generate evidence or use the evidence that we have to give the best answer that we can. Absolutely. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next month with a roundup from the world of evidence. Until then, it's goodbye from me. <laughs> goodbye from me and see you next time. You can find links to the papers and content that we've talked about in this week's episode notes. Please subscribe uh, to Talk Evidence and listen to us wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care out there.